Hey gang, so are you guys perplexed? Shapiro thinks you might be, and that's why he wrote this article. Well, I don't know if it's why he wrote it. This short guide to the perplexed regarding the heart working debate. Really, one of the reasons that I think he wrote this is because Shapiro was in the midst of formulating his own theory of what law is and why people disagree about it and how it's practiced. And this piece previews some of that theory. But it also very nicely summarizes various points of the debate between Hart and Dworkin. Not only what it is that they're disagreeing about and how that disagreement has changed over time, but why one might disagree about such things. Why does it matter whether people think morality is integral to law or separate from it? How does this change anything? All right, well, let's try to unperplexify ourselves and figure out what this whole debate is really all about. Why, after so many years, are people still arguing over the same things? Why have they not now at least clarified what it is they disagree about and maybe agree to disagree? Three things. First, Shapiro points to labeling confusion. This is where people are just using different words to mean the same thing or the same word to mean different things. This is just people talking past one another. More substantially, though, is the second cause for the continuing vitality of this debate. When we talk about law in its most fundamental level, we find that everything is hitched to everything else. So here, the debate over what law is covers judicial discretion, policy and adjudication, figuring out what it is that makes something a rule and something else not a rule, whether describing jurisprudence from an external perspective is even possible, debates over law's purpose, objective versus subjective moral values. You know, if, if the very description of law depends on an understanding of morality, well, then we're going to have all the debates we have about what morals are when we're talking about what law is. And a debate over what the proper description is or what it should be to engage in legal reasoning. All right, all, all of these things seem implicated when we are trying to provide a, a good description of what people are doing when they're engaged in law, or alternately, and maybe debatedly, uh, a description of what we should be doing when we engage in whatever it is that law is. Okay, the third issue here, the third reason that this debate continues, according to Shapiro, is that the participants have subtly changed their positions over time. We see Dworkin do that from the model of Rules 1 to model of Rules 2 and into Law's Empire, We also see Hart doing it, although we didn't see it during his lifetime. You read chapters from The Concept of Law. Most recent editions of The Concept of Law include a postscript that Hart wrote, but was not published within his lifetime. And in that postscript, Hart embraces what many people call, and what what Shapiro calls, soft legal positivism. We'll talk about that in, in a moment. He embraces the idea of principles in law, that law doesn't just consist of all or nothing rules. And he further elaborates his own theory of positivism in a way which appears to blunt a lot of the early critiques of Dworkin. So Hart has kind of subtly changed his position over time. Dworkin certainly has changed his. And so the, the, you know, the whole nature of the Hart-Dworkin debate has changed over time. Okay, what's the basic disagreement between Hart and Dworkin and between the sides of the Hart-Dworkin debate? And it's really quite simple. It's whether, and this is really the basic premise of positivism, it's whether legality 
whether something is law, the identification of something as law. Whether legality is determined by social practice or facts alone, or whether moral facts must also be consulted to know whether something is the law. Another way to put that is whether the person being asked to identify something as law or to identify what is the law or say what the law is, does that person need to make a moral judgment in order to do so? Does that person need to make a moral judgment? And Dworkin says, yes, the process of identifying and saying what the law is is inherently a process of moral judgment. We saw that last time. It's a process of fit and justification. Fit and justification into a system of political morality. Whereas for Hart and other positivists, identifying something as the law is to identify that it complies with a social rule, the rule of recognition, which is accepted, not guaranteed by some other rule, and not implicit in our morality. Let's take a look at Dworkin's early critique of positivism. This is the one in his paper, Model of Rules 1. And here, Dworkin sets up a model of positivism, really. It's called Model of uh, Rules, but really it's a model of positivism where he suggests that positivists subscribe, and positivism can be described by subscription to three theses. First is pedigree, that we can know whether something is the law by looking at how that thing, that statement was adopted, by looking at the behavior of various people and knowing based on kind of history, like was, was it adopted by a legislature? Was it, did the legislature do the following things, right? So all we have to look at is pedigree to know whether some statement is the law. Secondly, discretion, and that's the view that legal rules either entirely determine something or they don't at all determine something. So, in other words, a judge has total discretion where the law runs out, but no discretion at all when a rule applies. <laughs> you know, uh, Dworkin doesn't think that at all, but that's the, his characterization of positivism. Third, obligation. This is the view that a legal obligation arises under a valid legal rule. This framing clearly isn't really a fair appraisal of Hart's theory. First, the rule of recognition is obviously not determined by pedigree. It is a conventional social rule. Remember, this is, it, it's a rule because people accept it from the internal point of view. They accept it as a guide to their conduct. Now, not everybody in a society accepts the rule of recognition from the internal point of view, but at least a certain number of officials have to in order for the thing to work. So in the United States, if no one believed, no one accepted from the internal point of view that the Constitution controlled and that what is in the Constitution was the supreme law of the land, then it's hard to see how the, our legal system would hold together. The rule of recognition is not determined by pedigree. It's determined by acceptance. The discretion and obligation theses, these attempt to kind of pen heart to an all-or-nothing view of rules. Dworkin argues that law consists not only of all-or-nothing rules, but also principles. Principles are ideas in law that have weight, that can be opposed to one another and have to be evaluated. Understanding law as consisting of potentially conflicting principles bearing weight, that seems to be a better social description of what judging actually consists of. Especially once we notice that law is replete with what Dworkin calls theoretical disagreement. This is disagreement about the grounds of law, driven by competing ideas concerning the weights of these principles. A debate about flag burning, for example, and its protection under the First Amendment. 
When people argue this and whether the First Amendment protects flag burning, for Dworkin, you can't even understand this legal disagreement without understanding that the judges are disagreeing about basic principles as to whether the First Amendment protects flag burning or not. Their disagreement is theoretical in the sense that it calls for an, uh, uh, a commitment to an interpretation of the Constitution and an interpretation of our law more generally. There just is no ground for saying that one person's, say, textualist approach to interpreting the Constitution is wrong because of a particular rule, and another person's approach, maybe more pragmatic, is wrong because of some other rule. Those two are just having a theoretical disagreement about how to interpret the First Amendment, how to interpret the Constitution. In other words, how to apply the rule of recognition. For Dworkin, at bottom, this moral exercise of applying law and doing law is undergirded by broad principles of political morality. So morality is really flowing through everything that we do in law. When a judge decides a case, especially a a difficult case like flag burning, and we, we look at his or her argument, we may actually disagree with the conclusion, but we might say that the judge has acted rightly in deciding the case, in the sense that we think that the judge has properly done his or her job. You can't come up, according to Dworkin, with some master rule that accords to various principles definitive weights. The law is just shot through with moral judgment. And to say that a judge has done an okay job is to say that he or she has made the moral judgment consistent with our political morality. Okay, that's, that's the argument in Model of Rules 1. But does this really get at the core of Hart's positivist argument? Well, on this point, Shapiro observes that Dworkin probably has Hart wrong. Hart's doctrine, here's what Shapiro says, Hart's doctrine about judicial discretion is not predicated on a model of rules. It rests, rather, on a picture of law that privileges social acts of authoritative guidance. So it's not so much that rules have this kind of all-or-nothing property, so judges are either totally constrained or totally unconstrained, but that rules are limited by their capacity sensibly to guide our conduct. In another part of Concept of Law, one that we didn't read, Hart says that we are men and not gods, and we can't predict everything that's going to happen in the future. And so humans are limited in our ability to think about how we want to guide ourselves in the future, and so rules can't specify everything, and thus law has gaps. Dworkin doesn't think that law has gaps. He thinks law is a seamless web because there are always principles available, principles which we derive from our political morality that can be used to say what the law is at any instant in time. In the postscript to The Concept of Law, Hart acknowledges the important role of principles, but thinks they're included in his much broader concept of rules. For Hart, rules can be purpose-laden and broad, and indeed can yield to more important rules. So for Hart, law is not principles on the one hand and all-or-nothing rules on the other, but rules and principles are really kind of two sides of the same thing. They all have weight. For Hart, the important question is where such things come from, whether you call them rules or principles. He believes that once Dworkin admits to something like the fact that these principles that he talks about that Hercules uses, the fact that these are drawn from some, what Dworkin calls elsewhere, pre-interpretive law or a pre-interpretive body of law, then he's admitted to something like the rule of recognition. Here's what Hart says in the postscript. The main difference between my view and Dworkin's here 
is that whereas I ascribe the general agreement found among judges as to the criteria for the identification of the sources of law to their shared acceptance of rules providing such criteria, Dworkin prefers to speak not of rules, but of consensus and paradigms and assumptions which members of the same interpretive community share. So, basically, we don't disagree. Dworkin acknowledges the existence of some ultimate rule of recognition, some ultimate practice that we all accept that leads us to conclude what the law is. In a way, then, Hart is saying that the Herculean task of fit and justification, that that sense of morality that drives the Herculean judge to weigh principles in a particular way, that all of that is just a special case of the more general concept of law under which the ultimate rule of recognition is a social rule which is accepted or not. All right, now before we get to Dworkin's bigger, more substantial critique, let me just highlight the two kinds of positivism that Shapiro describes here. The first is exclusive legal positivism, sometimes called hard positivism. This is the full embrace of Dworkin's pedigree thesis. Instead of running away from it and saying, you've got it wrong, this is saying, yeah, that, that's right. The legality of any particular statement of law can be decided in every case without moral reasoning, just by looking at social facts. How does this seemingly rigid understanding of law deal with the fact that morality appears to be all over the law, that, that oftentimes judges weigh principles and make moral judgments? The best account here is probably the one by Joseph Raz, that, that this is no different. Judges using morality is, is no different than judges being asked to apply the law of another jurisdiction. If the law commands a particular intellectual exercise or the resort to a particular rule set, then the judge will do that thing. So when the judge applies morality or a principle of morality and is asked to resolve a case using that, he or she will do so. The source of that obligation, though, is in pedigree. It is not in morality itself and certainly not academic legal moralizing. But Hart is categorized as an inclusive legal positivist or soft legal positivist. And soft legal positivists subscribe to kind of two Theses. The one is the separability thesis, that there's no necessary connection between law and morality. We've discussed that already uh, in our discussion of the concept of law. The second is the social fact thesis, and that is that law's existence and content are ultimately determined by social facts alone. All right, now that just sounds like legal positivism, exclusive, hard, soft, whatever. It sounds like legal positivism. What's the difference between exclusive legal positivism and soft legal positivism or inclusive legal positivism. Well, the soft positivist judge is him or herself making a moral judgment when social rules require that judgment. Whereas the exclusive legal positivist judge applies moral principles that have pedigree, whatever his or her own judgment about them. Okay, so the if there is pedigree for applying a particular moral rule, the exclusive legal positivist will do so. That's different, though, than reaching his or her own moral judgment about the thing. Okay. Do you think after reading that and and hearing my description of it, you can formulate your own distinction between exclusive and inclusive legal positivism? I do want you to be able to distinguish those things. How are they different from each other? And then can you also state clearly how each is distinct from Dworkin's theory and from Fuller's theory, for that matter? All right, let's get on to the big challenge that Dworkin levels. This is the challenge which is in Law's Empire and Model of Rules too. Let's ask it this way. How do judges disagree 
about the method for interpreting law without resorting to morality and legitimacy? Like, how do they avoid the basic moral questions and taking moral positions when they disagree about such things? The perspective here is trying to understand what people are actually doing when they disagree about the law, when they disagree about legal reasoning. Here, Shapiro identifies Dworkin's distinction between law's content and law's grounds. So propositions of law, statements that, hey, that's the law or that's not the law or the law of Georgia is, those are either true or false. And if they're true, it's because of some grounds of law. There's some reason to say that the law has that content. People can obviously disagree about the content of law or about law's grounds. To disagree about content is to disagree about whether those grounds have obtained. In other words, you know, has the bill passed both houses or not? Right. That's to say that something is the law. One ground you might point to is that it has passed both houses of Congress. We might disagree about that question, about whether the law has indeed passed both houses, in which case we disagree about what the law is because we disagree about whether the grounds have obtained. We might also disagree, though, about the grounds themselves. We might have a disagreement about what it means for the House to pass a bill. Maybe a case will arise in which, I don't know, maybe a majority of the House gave their assent, or there's some reason to think a majority agreed to something and the Senate assume they agreed to that thing, but in fact, they didn't do it in the usual way. There, we're disagreeing not so much about the fact of whether there was passage. We're disagreeing about what it means for the House to pass a bill. We're disagreeing about the grounds. You think, in order to pass a bill, the following things have to happen. You know, maybe, maybe there has to be an official thing signed by the Speaker. I don't know what it would have to be. And I think that it just means that there is some clear evidence that the majority agrees to some text. Okay? I, I don't know what it could be. We could take different positions on that. The point is that we've taken different positions on the grounds for that law to be identified as a law. Dworkin thinks a lot of hard cases come down to this kind of disagreement about grounds. And indeed, a lot of legal disagreement generally comes down to a disagreement about grounds. So if we take a complicated question involving, say, abortion, and people disagree vehemently, maybe about whether it would be legal or it should be legal to require parents to be notified before their teenage daughter obtains an abortion. Why do people disagree about that question, about whether that would be legal under the Constitution? Is it because they disagree about the fact uh, of constitutional text, whatever that means? It, for Dworkin, it's not so much whether one of them is correct or not based on historical things that have obtained. It's that they're disagreeing about the legal grounds for saying that something is or is not the law. They're disagreeing about the grounds for concluding that something is constitutional or not. They're having a theoretical disagreement. If we try to shift and say that instead, there really is no clear rule about whether the Constitution proscribes those kinds of restrictions on abortion, and so judges are operating with unbridled discretion, and that that is perfectly legal because there is no rule which constrains it. We, I guess we could do that. Dworkin says that that seems to misdescribe what judges appear to be doing. Are they lying to us? They appear to be disagreeing theoretically about the meaning of the Constitution. Shapiro describes this objection, this observation about theoretical disagreement about the grounds of law as going right to the core of the positivist enterprise. 
because disagreement on law's grounds themselves negates the idea of convention and acceptance. There hasn't been an acceptance. That's why we are disagreeing about such fundamental matters. What do you guys think about this? Does the fact that people disagree so fundamentally about the meaning of the Constitution, does that negate Hart's idea that, in fact, there is some social rule that people follow that says the Constitution controls? Or if we take the Constitution to be the ultimate rule of recognition, that the fact that people disagree so fundamentally as to its meaning, does that negate the very idea that law is a system of rules ending up in the ultimate rule of recognition? Is the focus on hard cases the right focus? After all, people agree on an awful lot of legal questions. Are we affected by some kind of availability bias that, you know, when we think about legal issues, we think about the ones on which people disagree maybe most vociferously? But many legal questions are so trivial that no one ever sues over them. No one even thinks to disagree about them. And so maybe our legal system is characterized not by massive theoretical disagreement, but by massive theoretical agreement. Doesn't that prove that there is an ultimate rule of recognition that people accept? And that only in the rare case is the, I don't know, is the rule itself in the penumbra, is there some uncertainty about the rule? Does that affect our idea about legal positivism and morality? Think on these questions and let's, let's chat about them. Okay, I'm going to say just a few words about the Shapiro way. Here's what he says. The positivist should also agree with Dworkin that when theoretical disagreements abound, ascertaining proper interpretive methodology involves attributing a purpose to legal practice. One can't understand disagreements over interpretive methodology unless one sees them as disputes about the point of engaging in the practice of law. And, and then later, the positive has to seek social facts. The fact that some set of goals and values represents the purpose of a certain legal system must be a fact about certain social groups that's ascertainable by empirical rather than moral reasoning. Proper interpretive methodology would then be established by determining which methodology best harmonized with these goals and values. This is a way of saying that you can't understand law without understanding the point of engaging in the practice of law. Why are the people, why, why did they turn to law in the first instance rather than just going their separate ways? The idea here is to drop convention as the ultimate criterion and embracing the idea of purpose, but locating the purpose of a social group's law in social facts. It's the fact that they had a plan. And this is the origin of Shapiro's planning theory of law. Now I'm going to leave it to you guys to fill out what is this planning theory? How does it differ from Dworkin, from Hart, and from other positivists, and from Fuller and other natural lawyers? What's the essence of this so-called planning theory? All right, we'll come back to that when we talk. (laughs) 